This is Jerry DiPiano, and you are listening to or watching the Love Mia Vita podcast. Today, my guest is Sue Sun, and Sue is someone that crossed paths with me at some point in my career, as you may know, those of you that have heard my podcast in the past, you may know that I spent my entire childhood, just kidding, in prescription pharmaceuticals with many multinational companies, including the company now known as Pfizer. So we have a long history. I have a long history in women's health care. And Sue's son and I, turns out, at one point, had worked for the same organization, which means that we know more than the average person in the inner workings of big pharma, and specifically in women's health care. So today we are going to discuss and have a conversation about a topic that is near and dear to our hearts, and that is women's health, women's health equity, and the crisis in women's health care. So with that, I'd like to introduce Sue Sun. And Sue, please share some information about your wonderful background with our listeners and viewers. Well, thank you, Jerrianne. This is a, a great pleasure to, to talk to you and your audience. Um, so as you mentioned, I worked in pharma, but before pharma, I was a consultant in financial services. Um, and while the, the work was really rewarding um, and there was lots of growth, the why was missing for me. So I joined a pharmaceutical company about 15 years ago for the mission of really having an impact on people's lives and developing new medicines and vaccines. And uh, the real catalyst for me in sort of driving towards gender health equity was with COVID-19, like everyone else. <laughs> um, you know, that was a, a turning point for me personally. And um, while it was a time of great joy from a pharmaceutical standpoint where we got to shine, I was part of an industry that was able to bring vaccines in one tenth of the time. Um, but something that didn't get much media attention was how the COVID vaccine impacted women's menstrual cycles. Um, you know, it's one of those things where even if you Google it now, there's only about two articles. The reality is, is it impacted women's menstrual cycle and we still don't know why. So when I heard about it, I went to do some research myself. I, at the time, I was still working at a pharmaceutical company. And I went and talked to my team in the clinical trials and operations. And they sort of informed me, no, we don't generally collect menstrual information. Um, and it really got me to doing some research where I started peeling back the onion and realizing that we are just not recognizing the fact that men and women have different bodies. Um, and I know you and your audience, I don't have to tell you that um, women weren't even included in clinical trials until 1993. And when I think of pause to think about that, that's within my lifetime. That was when I was still an adult. Um, and it's just something that we really need to change. So one of the things, um, Jerry, that I was thinking about is the reason that we're here is that we just start out with the male body as the default. And then we think about women as smaller men. 
um, but now we know more. So, you know, researchers have found that there are sex differences in every tissue and organ system in the human body. Uh, there are sex differences in the fundamental mechanical workings of the heart. There are sex differences in lung capacity. Um, so in the last 25 years, we have demonstrated that the male and female bodies are da different down to the cellular level. But unfortunately, we haven't quite figured out how to adapt to this new information. So you had indicated to me that your background and experience allowed you to see this more clearly. And I mm. know something you and I share. Um, so when you've worked, when you've worked in an organization where you are developing, where you're doing research and development in women's healthcare products. And then you look at what is not part of the women's healthcare sort of product offering. And let's face it, women's healthcare was largely defined as reproductive health. So we thought about it in two areas, contraception and hormone replacement therapy. Perhaps some things that were tangential, osteoporosis was one that we examined. But when we think about diseases and disorders that disproportionately affect women, that was clearly not within the scope of what was called women's health care. Mm. Let's, let's chat about that. What was your, you talked about your the epiphany that you had during the COVID pandemic. And obviously we do know that men and women respond and responded differently to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. and perhaps responded differently even to the vaccines. So let, let's chat about that for a moment. Yeah, you know, I think, I think to the point that you made about the catalyst for me was, you know, the vaccine itself. But when I think about how my background got me to sort of get to this problem statement around health equity, part of it is as a consultant, um, the biggest thing is what's the business case? And when, when I step back and think about women now make up over 51% of the population, they account for 80% of consumer purchasing decisions in healthcare. However, we still don't know much about women's health. Um, to your point about uh, anything beyond reproductive health, um, there seems to be systemic barriers to focus on women um, in aggregate female conditions outside of oncology comprised as less than 2% of healthcare pipeline and just 1% of the roughly 200 billion spent on healthcare research and development focused on women's health. That's sort of the problem statement from a consulting hat perspective. Um, and then, um, as I mentioned, I've worked in uh, pharmaceuticals uh, company, really doing a lot of transformational change. And for me, um, as a transformational change driver, I think about, okay, what are the biases that we really need to change? What are the status quo mentality? Um, and there's something specifically around data that we need to change. And then um, I'm also an executive coach. And, and the reason I bring that up is that I think I hear 
and see a lot of limiting beliefs, not only uh, among women, but also when you think about clinicians. And uh, there's been lots of research done that sort of says clinicians don't tend to listen to women. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, this, this trope of um, hysterical women, right, because we don't believe them. We don't believe them when they say that they're not feeling well. We, we say it's all in their heads. So those kinds of limiting beliefs are things that we need to change as well. Um, but I think one of the biggest things um, is in clinical R&D, the biggest systemic barrier is this fact that we're using this one body as the default. Um, as we talked about the male body as the default in our research and development, um, and, and just to continue with how pervasive this is, up until recently, we've only used male mice <laughs> for early research as well. Um, so, you know, one implications that I want your audience to really think about is when we think about the male body and it's just, it has, let's think about hormones specifically. It has a very simplistic 24 hour one hormone cycle. So when you, when you sort of hear that, you go, okay, well, no wonder no one talks about hormones in medical school. But what you forget is there's 50% of the population where they have a 28-day hormonal cycle for women with multiple hormones going up and down. And, and Jerry, I know you and I were talking about this, and, and I don't, I, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to tell you that it, it's only been recently that did I really recognize that there are even phases of that 28-day cycle, you know, that at the earlier part is when I feel really optimistic, I'm clear headed, you know, it's really great. And then there are, are, are times when I feel more powerful. And then there are times when I need to rest. You know, these are things that I think we need to arm women with to know specifically about during that 28 day cycle, what are what are really key areas that I need to be honing in on to, to really achieve my personal best. And then we add the complication of that's when you, when women think about their menstrual cycle, they're thinking about the age group cohort that is at the peak of their reproductive, right? Reproductive life cycle. And we know it's just a transition, but let's be honest. We start to experience these hormonal fluctuations in our thirties, then they become more pronounced in our forties and by our fifties, median age of menopause, you see even more a stress placed on the system. Now, if you're a woman that goes into menopause and you don't add back hormones, then you deal with a certain set of circumstances, right? So the changes in estrogen, progesterone, estradiol levels, et cetera. Mm -hmm. but if you use hormone, if you add back the hormones through hormone replacement therapy, here we are, we're right back having our menstrual cycle, and then you have different consequences. So we really need to be tracking this to adjust for what we're experiencing. And by the way, it's our whole body. So our brain mm -hmm. is impacted, our brains, our hearts, our lungs, our muscles, our bones, everything is impacted by these shifts. Then if you add any comorbidity, so let's talk about women and cardiovascular disease as one example. Now we have a different set of circumstances that we need to address, right? And how do you respond to medication that's administered mm. different, you know, at different times? 
during your menstrual cycle, if you happen to be in the height of your reproductive years? And how does that change when we become menopausal or perimenopausal or menopausal? So all those shifts do need to be examined. We, we, did, um, we did a study of women with pain associated with fibrocystic breast condition. And we tended to use women who were in their, the height of their reproductive years. Why? Because we believed, we hypothesized that breast pain would begin to subside in perimenopause and menopausal years. But guess what? We were wrong. Mm. We still observed that women, even as they were getting older, would experience pain cyclical and non-cyclical breast pain that was that did not have anything to do with malignancy because we did screen for breast cancer. We wanted to be sure that these women had healthy breasts before we enrolled them in our study. What we also learned was that if women were on hormone replacement therapy or birth control, they could see an exacerbation of symptoms. So all of these factors need to be taken in into consideration. And let's face it, historically, they just haven't been taken into consideration. And we're not just talking about reproductive diseases and disorders. We're not talking just about the breasts and the ovaries and the uterus and the vagina. We're talking about the brain and the bones and the heart and the lungs, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the key thing that I, I heard in that um, example, Jerry, is just how we're we're really sort of maturing to this level of personal health so you know i i really like to think that even though we were talking about you know focusing on the male body as the default that was sort of our first level of maturity and then i think we're, we need to move towards really studying women uh, for the additional things that we don't know with the male body and so what you just highlighted was all the complications of not just looking at it from a binary women, men, but also looking at it across a lifetime, across different phases of his or her life. And, and I think that's the maturity level that we're trying to get to. And what we're pushing for when we talk about gender health equity is really getting to that next level of maturity of understanding of the human body. And I think that's really what's really exciting. Um, and I think really, unfortunately, though, until we get there, going back to this point about some of these biases that exist, I think one of the things that um, I see in the, in the industry is us going towards data driven decision making. So when I say those words, it feels very objective. You know, we're just letting the data decide where we prioritize what we choose to do. Um, but it, it's only objective and fair if the data is complete. And too often, um, there are just some data that's that's missing. Um, if I could just share a couple of examples, you know, there are two biases that I want to highlight. One is this notion of availability bias. So sometimes what we do is we just use the information that we have. So I don't know if you remember Addie's. It was the first drug approved by the FDA to treat basically um, hyperactive sexual desire disorder in women. So this was the female Viagra, the purple pill. Um, there was an issue with um, with its with um, its 
study around alcohol or an adverse event with alcohol. So they did a safety study. So they recruited 25 participants. Jerry, would you like to guess how many of them were men and how many for, were for women? Now, remember, this is purely for women. Right. I would, I would imagine that you probably had 70% were men and 30% are women. Yeah, unfortunately, as, as dire as that is, um, they only had two women and 23 men, even worse, right? And when uh, the pharmaceutical company was pressed for this, they basically said they recruited who came up to the recruitment. So that, that just really goes to that was who was available versus sort of taking a step back and realizing their selection criteria needed to be a little bit more clear. Um, the other sort of biases that I, I wanted to maybe bring up as an example was this idea of a status quo bias, that, that we tend to do things that we've always done. Um, when I've been investigating and researching around collecting MENSI information in clinical trials, I was talking to someone about the the opportunity for us to just collect MENSI information as a standard. Um, and when I can uh, questioned uh, a gentleman about it. He basically said, hey, you know, if the science decides and dictates that we need to collect MENSI information, then we'll collect it. So it all sounds great, but if you pause to say we never collect it, to know that we need to collect it, how are we going to change to collect it? So that's, that's sort of the idea behind sort of this these biases that are inherent with data that we might not always see. So that brings up the question of something like the collecting baseline data. So mm. again, we look at, when we look at baseline to end of treatment and when we run a clinical study, at the baseline, we ought to be collecting data on menstrual cycles. If, you're, if it happens to be that your study population is skewed towards an older age group cohort, a more mature age group cohort. And I use the example of overactive bladder or urinary incontinence. So we tend to see that it is more prevalent in a more mature audience. We should be collecting information on where a woman stands in terms of her menopause. We buy, uh, and I would say not even coincidence or serendipity, but when we recruited women for a study of overactive bladder, mm. what we also did was we looked at certain symptoms of menopause, one of which was genitourinary syndrome of menopause, because it could be confounding. It could be that if a woman was in perimenopause and she had some amount of pelvic floor dysfunction, that her, you know, that her pelvis was weaker, maybe she had had multiple pregnancies, but not necessarily so, that perhaps um, the symptoms that she was experiencing weren't truly the symptoms of urinary incontinence or overactive bladder. Maybe it was more stress-related incontinence because of all the pressure of the delivery, the vaginal birth, et cetera. But what we also wanted to understand was whether the burning, the itching, the urgency was truly a symptom of urinary incontinence or overactive bladder or menopause. But had we not put that into consideration, we would never have known whether our product was improving 
or reducing the symptoms of overactive bladder. So we had to put that into the study. But again, this was our orientation for other investigations that have taken place historically, even for conditions as you illustrated before, where the disproportionate or disproportionately experience these problems. That data wasn't collected. And I will say this, that until quite recently, when you think about overactive bladder or urinary incontinence, it's a disease and, and disorder of women. Mm. Because when, when men have these issues, it's a prostate issue. So yes, it's, it is urology, but we should be looking at this very differently. So if you're using, if you're studying a drug for men and you're using a large majority of your, of your study population, as a male population, you're really not appreciating what's happening in this menopausal age group cohort. And we, there are example, there's example after example, same, same deal with pain. I'm sure you know this, but pain, 100 million US citizens who suffer from chronic pain, guess what the percentage of pain sufferers happens to be? 80% women. <laughs> 70, pretty close, 70%. Mm. But we over-medicate and don't even get me started on the whole opioid crisis. Don't get me started on it mm. because it's not gonna, it's gonna be ugly. But we are over-medicating women and we're not delivering the right type of pain medication. Um, so, so many examples. Um, we used to refer to it as paternal benevolence. Women were be, to be protected, and clearly we have not been protected. It really is a backlash against women. So now it's what do we do to improve women's mm. equity? Because that's the key. I mean, yes, we you know we know that there's systemic bias. We know there is systemic um, that there is bias that is both directed at women and I will say women of color. Mm. We want to be inclusive, or I should say, persons with a vagina, right? Because we want to distinguish between sex and gender. So if you have a if you have a vagina, there is whether you are white or brown or black or whatever your your race, you are you are being systemically treated. You're treated with a bias, and we want to make sure we're inclusive. So we want to be sure to distinguish between sex and gender. Absolutely, Jerry. And, and to your point about what can we now do, um, I think that's what's really exciting. And um, as I mentioned uh, that I was an executive coach and doing work with Unlocking Eve, and I'll share a little bit about what they do. But as a coach, what I've noticed a lot is just <clears throat> the self-limiting beliefs um, that we tell ourselves. And, you know, if I can go back to the example around um, the, the status quo, there's, there's this limiting belief within the industry that says, if I, if I try to include more women, or if I take more data, like Mensi information, it'll take longer, and it will cost more. Those are limiting beliefs versus we we could sort of really look at it from a perspective of design um, and design with equity in mind. 
Um, so I think that's really one of the biggest opportunities for not only individuals, but also organizations as well. So if I could just spend a minute on Unlocking Eve. Unlocking Eve was born from the unwavering belief that enabling new models of balanced and integrated leadership is essential to transform healthcare and heal the world. Um, we're helping leaders unlock the power of two. Uh, one of these is the balance of masculine and feminine leadership styles into the integrated leadership. So what I've been personally working on is the integration of my masculine traits of focus, drive, with my positive feminine trait like empathy and collaboration. Um, and specifically, I've been working on this notion of agency and authorship. And I think it's it, these are the tools that we could really counteract limiting beliefs. And Jerry, I, I, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and I know that theme of agency has really come up multiple times. And I, I just I was curious, what what does that word really spark for you? So really, it's about making choices, having the authority, right? having the authority to make decisions for yourself and living with the consequences, because let's face it, you may make certain decisions and they may be the wrong decisions, but that's okay. You deal with the consequences. When you're deprived of agency, then for me, it behooves us to scratch our heads and say, wait a minute, who do we have to blame for this, mm. right? Because we've given up our agency to another person Right. And the consequences that we suffer, whether they're good consequences, so they're attributable to someone other than ourselves, and or if they're <clears throat> if the consequences are not so good, it's the same, it's the same issue. We have to feel that we are in control. And that's for me, that's what agency means, that I am in control of what I do because I make the decisions for me, for myself. Uh, that that's lovely and, th and that's what I have in mind as well and so that notion that we all have agency and authorship allows us to break away from our own limiting beliefs that something is being done to us I get to create um, so you know I've shared what we we have in terms of biases and missing data on women but each of us um, has the intention and can have our own agency around the data that's being collected. Um, so, you know, our my sort of call to action for all of your listeners is really for us to really get to know ourselves a little bit better. Um, how are you acting as a scientist, as an example? So you are uniquely you. No one else is like you. You know yourself the best. So don't defer to your healthcare providers. Yes, they have an expertise, but at the end of the day, you only you know how it feels. So it's a little bit of that idea as a scientist is test and learn. So if it doesn't work for you, um, say so and be vocal and, and own your agency to let that healthcare provider um, know if it's working or not working and there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> it's that whatever treatment it is, isn't working for you. So really that's the, that's the sort of call to action. <clears throat> I think the other thing, other two sort of roles that I want your audience to really think about as you as a leader. So we've talked a little bit about all these systemic barriers and, and biases. Um, they're in everyone's day-to-day -day lives. Um, I would love for 
each and every one of your listeners to really just see it and call it out. You know, have the courage to call it out and really um, only through each of us making these changes will things change. Um, one, one good news about this part is um, in 2019, for the first time, the majority of medical students are women. So I think we're, we're, we're at that tipping point. And so let's each of us um, add to that tipping point. Um, and something, Jerry, that you and I've talked about is um, you, the listener, as an investor. Um, the only way we're really going to get to this health equity is we need more money <laughs> to focus on women's health. And whatever that looks like for each of you, you can be an investor in women's health. So it's interesting that you say that because we know that money rules, right? He who has the gold is in control. And that's really sad, right? So um, I didn't have a lot of gold growing up. In fact, I was raised in a pretty modest household. Um, and I will be honest with you, women's health care in general has suffered over the decades from a lack of investment. So you're absolutely correct. But women women control trillions of dollars of wealth. Why? Because we do still outlive our male counterparts. And while that is important, where are we deploying these resources? Are we putting it in the hands of male males who tell us where to invest our resources? And that's the other issue that we have to contend with because the financial services industry, whether it's wealth advising, or banking, or private equity, or venture capital is largely controlled by men. So, does not surprise you that 4% of all biopharma R&D spending, only 4%, goes towards female-specific conditions. Mm. Of 37 prescription drugs that the FDA approved in 2022, only two were for female specific conditions. This is coming right out of Harvard and the, and the World Economic Forum. So I'm not making these numbers up. These are numbers that are coming out of reputable sources. It is a disgrace. So we need to encourage women both to enter the financial services industry. So if you're a young woman, please, please make sure you're, you're Financial literacy is very strong. If you have an inkling towards moving into a career path, this is an area where you can really make a, a difference because you will become a decision maker. And this is also a word to the wise, all those women who are listening, who have the choice to make investments in women-led companies, consider this consider the mission. And by the way, don't be blinded by the companies where you have a woman leading the company who has been propped up by the guys, because there are a lot of those companies that are out there. And at the, the end of the day, they still have a male agenda. It's not a female-led agenda. It is a male agenda. Again, this is not to male bash, but it's good, as you said early on, to peel back the onion. Look at the mission and vision of the company that you support and consider what they've done, what their history and what their legacy has been, because that will tell you a lot about how they provide 
products and services with market research involving mostly women or research in general that has focused largely on women and is women-centered. That's, that's really key. And again, um, there are lots of institutions, including the Gates Foundation, where they have been exploring ways in which they can change the dynamic to, to better or to improve the outcomes in health. We're still seeing in the United States alone that women are, are largely dying of preventable diseases and there are healthcare disparities, particularly against brown and black women. There is a systemic bias in medicine and it's both for women and women of color in particular. So we need to, we need to change the way in which we think about populating our clinical work. We need to rethink the way in which we ask good questions. So if you know, you're going to your physician, go with a list of questions. Don't, don't show up unprepared. Do your research ahead of time and advocate for yourself. Second opinions, I always do second opinions. I love my healthcare practitioners. And in general, I, I salute all the healthcare practitioners because their job is a tough job. But if, you, if you're not satisfied, you have the right to do your own research and investigate. And that will bring about health equity, one woman at a time. Yeah, Jerry, I, I couldn't have summarized it any better. I, I think it feels a bit daunting, but all change is local and social change happens because we change. And I think the, the call to action between you and I are if each listener really looks internally and says, what can I do to drive health equity? We will change. Absolutely agree with you. And, you know, the part two of this is really bringing some of the healthcare practitioners into the conversation, because as we've interviewed on the Love Me Avita podcast, a number of highly qualified, well-trained, woman focused, woman-oriented practitioners. We need to enlarge this conversation. There, we need to do a better job of providing the educational tools. Most of these practitioners will tell you that they, are, they did not receive this training in medical school, and they primarily received this as a function of their changing population. So women like you and me, who walk into their office and will start to ask the questions and they will go back and they will do their research. I am very hopeful that as long as we, so it's grassroots, right? As long as we push the agenda forward, our healthcare practitioners who are kind and thoughtful and well-trained can learn from us too. What is it that you need? You have you have to be willing to express your needs. So if you're if you're experiencing problems with sex, if you're experiencing a different kind of chest pain, or if your depression seems refractory, you need to let your healthcare practitioner know. And you also need to be mindful about where you are in your transition. So whether you are menstruating female 
where you are perimenopausal, menopausal, or postmenopausal. That self-knowledge is super important in getting the best possible care. She's giving me the thumbs up here if, you, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's great. And I think it goes back to where we started a bit, which is uh, it really comes down to individually about agency. We get to create the future that we want, and it includes health. And our personal health is really about knowing ourselves and then asking for what we need. There is, um, you shared a little vignette with me about a little girl that was on the beach and she was fishing. And I think that that it's worthy of share. It's shareable for sure. If you have it yeah. already in the story. A absolutely. And I, and I think about that story often when, uh, you know, I have conversations like this where it feels daunting. Um, so there's there's a little girl and she was walking along and noticed that just a bunch of fish has washed up. So she starts picking up a fish one at a time and throws it back into the water. Um, she picks one up and um, a man walks by and says, you know, you're not gonna be able to save all of them. And she picked up one fish, threw it into the water and said, I've saved that one. And that's how I think of health equity in that that's really, uh, this is a, a little bit of a journey where we will make small progress, but if we keep focused and really think about saving one fish at a time, uh, we will drive towards health equity. And there are those of us that keep pushing that boulder up the mountain with you and we will continue to engage and to, but also to, make certain that our legislators, that our regulatory agencies are on board. You'll see lots of initiatives that have come forward from the United States Food and Drug Administration. I'm looking at one right now, FDA regulation must uphold women's health by Genevieve Graham and Cara, Ten Cara Tenenbaum. And I'm also looking at one from the Centers for Device and Radiological Health, it's a strategic plan. So. There is hope on the horizon, and you can count on women like Sue Sun and Jerry DiPiano <laughs> to keep pushing that boulder up the mountain for you and with you for women's health equity. So stay tuned. This won't be the last time that you hear from us or see us. But for now, this is Jerry DiPiano and my wonderful guest, Sue Sun, we are signing off. And just remember to love Mia Vita. Thank you, Sue Sun. It was a pleasure to speak with you. I loved our conversation and I hope that you, our listeners and viewers, enjoyed it as much as we did. Now go get them. Mm -hmm.